This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm a yin yoga teacher, uh, an acupuncturist, and a dharma practitioner teacher. And um, in this podcast, I really try to look at um, a variety of aspects to the path that involve opening to our shadow sides of our being, the light aspects of our being, and how our practice, whether it's yoga or meditation, how our practice can integrate the two sides of our being, our yin and yang, to greater wholeness and flourishing. And um, in today's episode, I'm sharing with you a talk I gave last week um, that was really in response to several questions that are coming up in the Sangha around what I heard to be, the question was, what's the relationship or how does our practice serve a world that is so obviously aflame with uh, so many varieties of fires. And um, and that's a theme that I've been trying to sort of dart around or move, weave in and around throughout this year, but I, I, I try to underline some salient points around that today. Um, and the, the big takeaway is that um, I think echoing many others that I've uh, been inspired by, um, that it's the idea that to see greater societal or sociological transformation, that those outer forms of transformation inevitably and, and primarily must begin within the consciousness and heart and mind of individuals. Um, so this is sort of my, my broad view around how practice itself is, a, is in some ways a mechanism for social action, social activism, that by practicing regularly, committing with consistency to the development, evolution, and transformation of our own consciousness, we, um, we contribute that to the world and the community that we're integrated with. So um, I hope, I'd be curious what you think about this talk. I've already received many uh, very deep and insightful responses from members of the Sangha. Um, that's the Riverbird Sangha. It's an online community of practitioners that really orbit around the central practices that Terry and I teach, the practice of yin yoga, which is a very accessible, um, non-competitive, um, meditative, it's implicitly meditative style of physical yoga that's great for um, lo- dislodging tensions um, or obstructions of energy within our body um, that helps promote a sense of easygoing free flow of, of chi within or energy within that supports a calm presence, which then leads to greater depths of insight within meditation. And um, my partner, Terry Coburn, she teaches yin yoga and qigong, and the moving, the subtle accessible movement practice of qigong really helps people awaken to the perception of their energy which then complements the development of that awareness within the yin yoga and the meditation. So uh, I just mentioned that if you're interested in practicing along with us, we, we offer a variety of classes every week online that you're avail- available to attend live if, you're, if that works with your schedule. Or you can come and uh, participate through the recordings, the replays that are stored within our library. Um, so your participation in those classes is a benefit to you. It supports our work with the podcast here. And um, it contributes, I believe, to a greater uh, collective consciousness um, imbued with more compassion and wisdom. 
So there's a link for you in the show notes on how to participate in our online yin yoga, qigong, and meditation classes. Uh, and there's also a few links in the show notes for an affiliate program that we have formed with the functional mushroom company, Mushroom Revival. I had the founder and CEO on the podcast a few weeks back. His name is Alex Dorr, and uh, we discussed how functional mushrooms, reishi, cordyceps, lion mane, these are um, not psychoactive, in case you think of mushrooms as all being psychoactive in the, in the medicinal sense. These are non-psychoactive mushrooms that have been used for thousands of years in Chinese medicine and, and elsewhere, used for their ability to help um, people uh, better weather stress. They're adaptogenic mushrooms that help uh, us process stress. So um, these are uh, it's a wonderful product and uh, that Alex has put together that essentially functional mushroom formulas for stress reduction, for energy, for greater mental focus, and for calming one's spirit. So um, if you're interested in that, check out the podcast I did with him, and then you can also uh, click through with the affiliate link, and we will receive a, a, a modest percentage of that sale um, in support of our work with the podcast here. So thank you for that. Okay, and um, I know this is a kind of a heavy topic of this of this theme of compassion amidst crisis, but I hope my reflections here um, are both validating to what you may be feeling and um, supportive and inspirational to some degree around how our collective practice together is of um, vital essence right now. So I leave you with that. Thank you for your practice. And without further ado, today's talk, Compassion Amidst Crisis. For tonight's Dharma reflection, I, I wanted to kind of share a, a few questions. I've actually received several of these types of questions um, in light of recent events, uh, particularly in the United States, but I think it intersects with lots of what's going on in the world. And um, there's one question in particular that I, I think kind of encapsulates the essence of what several people have been writing to me about. So this member of the Sangha wrote, I'm wondering if you can shed some light on the idea of compassion. I'm having a really hard time with the recent news coming out of Texas. And while I'm grateful to have my practice to lean into, I'm grateful for my practice to lean into, I also feel somewhat foolish to be teaching yoga classes when it feels like the whole world is a dumpster fire. Maybe this is harsh, but I really don't understand how I am supposed to find compassion for these lawmakers who continuously allow our children to be massacred, parenthetically, and are hell-bent on controlling women. I don't want to become calloused, but when the agenda doesn't involve making someone's life better, I cannot put energy towards that. So I don't know where that leaves me but I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this way. And I, um, I read that and I, I really felt the, the rawness and the anguish uh, behind the heart that shared that, that reflection. 
And as I said, there several others came in that were quite similar. And if I if I've read through this question a few times, and, and when I and I listen to it, two of the things that uh, really leap out at me, as as I think might be the the core kernels of the questions here, is one: how what is the what does compassion mean in relationship to people? individuals or groups that commit what strike us and what strike me as atrocity. And then and then the question the, the second part of that question is, and it's sort of tied up with the way this person phrased it, where they said, I feel somewhat foolish to be teaching yoga classes. So the, the question is about what action what is, a, what is an appropriately responsive action to the face of these atrocities, in the face of these atrocities? The implication, yoga doesn't feel like enough. Yoga is not significant enough. So what, what kind of action will be of service? And she, they said, when the agenda doesn't involve making someone's life better. So that's part of the the, the question in, in around action, what kind of actions will actually make life better, improve conditions? So again, when I give a talk, when I give a reflection on some aspect of the Dharma, um, the, the essence of the talk is really around a question usually. And so I invite you to hold these questions in your own mind and heart. Um, I'll offer some reflections around it. Uh, my reflections are likely always going to be somewhat incomplete and unsatisfying or unsatisfactory. <clears throat> but my hope is that the, the questions and, and the reflections will, will stimulate uh, a more uh, sincere or um, sort of a burning investigation in your own heart around the meaning within these questions or the, the spirit of these questions. So before I, I'm going to take a, take a circuitous route here. So before I try to address this particular question directly, I want to share a, a short anecdote um, that was a, a, a teaching anecdote that I participated in and witnessed. Um, so this is going back several years when I was teaching at a studio in Boston and I had developed a relationship with, um, well, I had been practicing at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts for quite some time. And I um, had developed a little bit of a relationship with the senior or not, the, wasn't called the senior teacher. He was called the, the, re, the teacher in residence. His name is Chaz de Capua or his name is Chaz de Capua. And Chaz was, is the resident teacher at IMS still. He's been there for a few decades now. Um, so he's the, he's the teacher to all the staff members at the retreat center. And he also leads retreats there and teaches outside of the retreat center. But I was bringing Chaz to the, the studio in Boston to do um, day-long retreats that I would sort of co-teach with him. I teach the yin yoga, he teaches the meditation. And at one point in the afternoon of a day-long retreat with Chaz, a friend of mine who was taking the retreat was in the back of the room. 
And he raised his hand during the Q&A. And, um, you know, sometimes people ask questions very softly. And my friend had kind of a, a, a bit of a booming voice. And he says, I'm having a really hard time because while I'm meditating, I keep having memories of being an asshole. And he said, I, I'm, I really am disgusted with some of my behavior. And I don't know what to do about it. And um, this is where <laughs> I had just started sharing meditation classes at the time. And so I was really curious, how is a senior teacher going to handle this kind of a question? And um, Chaz, I don't know if I'll get his if I'll remember his response exactly, but what I remember hearing was Chaz said something like, look, as you remember these incidences where you ha now have regret for your behavior or regret around your behavior, it's important to remember, and this is the way Chaz said, he said, if you could have done something differently back then, you would have. And, you know, at the first time, I was like, is he just excusing bad behavior? Like, oh, if you could have done something differently, you would. It's sort of like this almost a fatalistic sense, like you, you did what you did and there was nothing you could do about it. And it, it sounded to my ears fatalistic. But then Chaz, I by my memory, tried to explain it a little bit more. And he, and he said, at any given moment, our actions are the result of the conditions that are operating in our mind. At any given moment, our actions are the result of what conditions are, that we're acting upon that are present in our mind and heart, another way of saying it. And he then said, you know, he, he, told this, this little parable, which is, is fairly famous in the, in the meditation world. Um, it's attributed to a kind of a, a, a Cherokee or indigenous Native American Cherokee story, where one evening, he said, where one evening an old Cherokee told his grandson about a battle that was going on inside of people. He said, quote, my son, the battle is between two wolves inside us all. The battle is between two wolves inside us all. He said, one is evil. It is anger, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. It's quite a lengthy list. The other wolf, <clears throat> said the old Cherokee, the other wolf is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. Now, the grandson, listening to his grandfather, thought about it for a moment and then asked, which wolf wins? Which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee simply said, the one you feed the one you feed. 
And I think what Chaz was trying in, in sharing that story, what Chaz was trying to say is that when we do look into our minds and hearts, and particularly when we look through the actions, you know, the, the behaviors, the forms of speech, the historical actions in our life, we can see that, at least I can see at times, my behavior was more noble. It was operating based on intentions like compassion, generosity, friendliness, selflessness, and times where my behavior is not that bad. It's more selfish, more self-focused, harsh, critical, judgmental. And when I think about what Chaz said, if you could, if you could have acted differently, you would have in the context that when certain conditions of the mind, the, the, the kind of the afflictive pain causing emotions, when we act on those when, or when they're present and we don't have the skills to see them clearly and not act upon them, then we can act out upon those, those conditionings in ourselves and cause harm. And the more, you know, I, I know some of you have, have looked into this yourselves and heard about this probably, but there really is a way that, well, I should say on one level, I'm not so much a fan of considering the the, sec, the first wolf in our heart, evil, in the sense that it's um, like essentially evil. My sense is that these quote unquote evil aspects of the human heart are forms of psychological and spiritual pathology. They're illnesses that have causes and conditions beneath them that give rise to these pathologies. And part of what we've been talking about this year is how to recognize when there are difficult aspects of our personality or subparts of us that are causing us or others suffering and how to skillfully start to converse and listen to and engage with these parts not as a way of eradicating them. So that there's an often a spiritual energy of trying to eradicate all, all signs of quote unquote evil within our heart. I think it's much more accurate to think that, or to, to view it that we wake up to this, these, uh, these negative forms of conditioning and through presence, through attention, through compassion, we start to transform those energies from their negative uh, charge or their negative uh, effect in our life. And we, they become integrated in part of more of a thriving, flourishing life. So that said, um, there is a fair amount of evidence that the practice we're doing a practice of meditation, a practice of mindfulness has 
real world, and I mean real material influence on our minds. And that's through brain neuroimaging. It's been a while since I've looked at some of those studies, but I, when I gave more formal talks on this, I remember studying up the, the neuroscience research on this, particularly with neuroscientists from Boston, like Sarah Lazar, who I interviewed way back on the podcast. But um, a lot of the neuroscience is showing that meditators, mindfulness meditation practitioners, from like say the beginning of a, a course of training to say eight weeks out of, of, a, of a certain kind of training, they're showing that there are cortical, meaning changes in the brain structure to these practitioners, specifically in relationship to this two wolf uh, parable from the Cherokee. There's re research showing that the amygdala, the center of the brain that um, is involved in strong emotional reactions. Sometimes you hear the phrase, you got an amygdala hijack when you get flooded by rage or anger or, or fear. So these studies show that the amygdala actually gets a little smaller. It shrinks in size and cortical, in cortical size. And in inverse relationship to the amygdala shrinking, the prefrontal cortex, the seat of higher cognitive function and reason, it's getting stronger and thicker. And those changes in the brain are correlated with more emotional well being, more emotional intelligence, more empathy, <clears throat> less depression and anxiety. So these are suggestive that, and they're actually quite fascinating in, in the sense that. Practice of meditation is essentially a mental event. It involves the body, but we're 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 practicing exploring the experience of consciousness. But what we're attending to, what we're aware of, and the sense of awareness itself that sees what's happening. And so when we subjectively we kind of roll up our sleeves and get really close to the experience of consciousness and pay attention to how we're paying attention. That this practice that the Buddha laid out 2,500 plus years ago, which is a practice again of the mind, practice of, of consciousness itself, that this has a influence on the brain itself, the, like the, the material basis for this consciousness. The, you know, in the, you probably heard the phrase that neurons that fire together wire together to describe neuroplastic changes. So plastic means how structures change in response to their use. So the brain structures will change in response to their use. So that slight diversion, sharing with you the story about my friend who had all that regret for his behavior and the teacher's response around, if you could have done something differently, you would have. And now, and that the teacher did put, this was the final point that the teacher reflected back to, chat, uh, to, to my friend. Teacher said, but now in your practice, 
by virtue of the fact that you're practicing, you are a planting seeds of good intention. You're planting seeds of awareness. So every time we bring our attention back or know that we're here, we're reinforcing that groove of perception, that habit of paying attention. When we do that, we open up the ability to recognize patterns more quickly, particularly afflictive or reactive patterns more quickly. And that ability to catch the pattern, you know, at the moment it sparks before it turns into a fire can make all the difference. So he said, the teacher said, you, by your virtue of your practice, you are taking care, you're, you're essentially planting seeds for a better future self. You're increasing the, pro he didn't say it like this, but he, I'm, I'm extrapolating. By practicing, we're, we're increasing the probability that in a future moment, we will be awake in that moment with greater presence, clarity, and compassion. Why? Because like a good musician, like a good athlete, like a good artist, writer, painter, dancer. I don't want to leave anything out, but like anyone with, with a high level of skill, they get there through training. It just doesn't happen on its own. There needs to be training. So our practice is one of training our minds and hearts to be rooted within our experience to see what's happening clearly so that we are able from a position of choice, agency, free will, whatever you wanna call it, we're able to act upon intentions that we value. And I, I could say the intentions could be friendliness, kindness, compassion, generosity, selflessness, But we can only act on those intentions when we're awake. If we're not awake, if we're kind of half conscious through our life, drifting around like a programmed robot, <clears throat> as many, as, as I might say, I, I find myself at times during the day, it, we are subject to our conditioning at that point. We are not aware of our conditioning. We are subject to it. So this brings me back to the question that this member of the Sangha raised both around how do we have compassion for the perpetrators of atrocity? And I, I think the first thing I wanna say on that is we have to be clear about what do we mean by compassion? And in general, my working uh, Buddhist-inspired definition of compassion is the heart's intention and heart's energetic action to reduce or relieve or end suffering for oneself or for, one other, for another or for a group. So compassion is, 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 a, is a, a healing intention 
It's a healing energy. It's not a feeling of liking something. And I, and I wonder if that's part of the confusion that kept coming up. Like, how do I have compassion for these killers? How do I have compassion for the politicians that are, that are you know, creating the, the system in which killing keeps occurring? It's not that we like these people or need to like them. It's more in... I think what the Buddha is offering is a way of understanding through our own understanding of ourselves, what's at play or what explains the behavior. And so in the Buddhist analysis, just like what my, like, Chaz, the teacher from IMS, said to my friend, when you acted in the way that you now regret, the causes of harm, the causes of suffering were greater than the conditions and causes for peace. Now that explanation, I want to be very clear on this, that explanation does not justify the action. But it does, again, here's that word, it does, I think, more accurately frame what is at play in these, in these conflicts. And I, and I don't want to be too simplistic here. But it highlights that people aren't intrinsically evil or intrinsically pure. They're a mixed bag, like the wolf you feed story she talks about. And due to education, due to misinformation, due to bias, due to worldview issues. All of these things compound and I think get individuals into pathological states. And if you need a dramatic illustration of this, um, you may have to scroll back on my podcast to a talk I gave where it was a series of some reflections around um, a, a sutta in the Buddhist canon about a, ultimately a devotee of the Buddhas, someone who attained full enlightenment, but prior to ordaining as a monk under the Buddha, the individual um, had fallen into a very um, wicked and evil mode of living where he was a serial killer and the story is about called angali mulas angali malas uh, dharma so if, if that with that example which is an extreme one the it, it illustrates how a 
there is a potential for redemption. And that the very painful, what is what we could call generically evil actions are born out of confusion, greed, hatred, the things that the Buddha said we are ignorant to. And so this path of practice is about waking up to those conditions of confusion or delusion or ignorance about who and what we really are. And waking up to the limitations of self-centered greed and hatred. But that's a development, which brings me to reflecting on the part of this uh, member's share where they said they felt foolish teaching yoga classes. Now, I know what I think I know what they mean in the sense that in the face of these horrific flares, horrific ongoing injustices. Like I said, I think last week, teaching yoga, practicing yoga, practicing meditation can feel like kind of ineffective navel gazing when what is required is real, real activism. And I don't argue with that. I don't deny that real activism, boots on the ground kind of activism is necessary. But I do push back on the idea that, and I know I'm saying this because many of us here are teachers of yoga and meditation. And some of you that aren't here with any intention to teach, um, I would just say you're welcome. And I'm glad you're here. And you should be glad in the sense that the members here that are teaching bring a a level of their own practice to this discussion and to our our shared time together. Um, And so I, I mean that with with deep respect for all of you in that uh, the collective wisdom from all of you, in particular, the folks that have been practicing longer than I have that are here, bring their own uh, layers and um, sort of choruses of wisdom to, to the conversations. But on the teaching front, <clears throat> And this is sort of how I see the Sangha. Let me me try to phrase it like this. This comes back to my um, teacher's response to my friend at that workshop. In the Buddha's analysis, actions are the outcome of intentions. So actions follow intention. Sometimes intentions are conscious. A lot of times intentions are unconscious. Either way, what we do is flows from a particular intention. And this is what I would say the meditation impresses upon the meditator the more they look at their experience. Particularly when you sit in a simplified 
uh, environment. You just sit with yourself, not intending to move. You know, at first you might get familiar with watching sensory experience. You hear sounds, you see thoughts, you see, feel sensations. But at a certain point, you start to catch a subtler layer of the inner world dynamic, which is that from stillness, an intention bubbles up that then leads to, like in a chain, it leads to the desire to do something. Might, it launch, might launch you into start the desire to think about something. It might launch you into the desire to scratch, the desire to shift your posture, the desire to turn something on or off. And we can start to see these intentions as we practice. Now, the, th the thing that the Buddha tried to say is that intentions inspire action, but the view we have informs the intentions that arise. So the, the kind of the world, the way we see the world, the view we have of the world organizes and, and in a sense selects certain intentions to be acted upon. <clears throat> so when we think about the problems we see in society, or at least when I think about the problems I see in society, I see conflicts erupting all over the place that are born out of worldviews that see a world of separation, or see a world of us versus them. And so long as that worldview is the operative lens through which individuals are relating to the world that they're in, I really don't see how we are going to resolve all the conflicts we're seeing or, or move beyond or start to, um, again, I don't see a utopia coming, but mitigating some of the really atrocious things we're seeing and witnessing. So I'm, and I'm not the first to say this. I'm, I'm, I'm just underlining a word on, on this idea, which is that if the worldview, i.e. The, the worldview that is refracting human consciousness continues to see a world of separation, a world of what my friend calls zero-sum games, where it's I win, you lose, you win, I'm going to lose. So an us versus them, we can't, we don't cooperate because if we cooperate, I'm going to lose kind of uh, worldview. The solution for that, one way I look at it is we need to upgrade our worldviews. So we have to evolve from a world, a lens of seeing the world where we're separate, different in conflict with each other to a worldview that perceives things more accurately. When I say it's accurate from a scientific perspective or an accurate level, like if you look at the earth from the moon, that we're not in a zero sum us versus them competition, 
we're in a we scenario in non-zero or collaborative we're in a collaborative dynamic where our outcomes are directly correlated if we cooperate we have a chance of succeeding if we continue to fight we're doomed to put it bluntly so this is now this is all build up to what i'm trying to suggest we're doing in the sangha and by extension what many of you are doing directly as teachers and indirectly as practitioners who are developing yourself and being a different kind of person different kind of consciousness different kind of worldview in the world so there's, there's a lot of fancy names for these different worldviews but one that you know i think you can maybe connect with is the idea that you could have a worldview where the a person's identity is defined in kind of ethno-nationalistic terms you're defined by your ethnicity or your nation or your or both and that the in-group that you're in is at odds with all the other out-groups And we can contract, we can put that on the map of develop like of, of human development that that's a stage that humans can can grow into but it's not the end point of human developmental growth but it's possible and there's many case studies of this of people growing and evolving their worldview to a global level they become global citizens have a very cosmopolitan outlook they're rooted in their ethnicity, rooted in their ancestry, rooted in their culture of origin, rooted in their family, rooted in these things, as, as, as Greg Thomas would have explained it once. But the consciousness is expanded to include an awareness of interbeing and the shared, the shared destiny we all have. Now that development, that kind of growth of the individual's consciousness doesn't usually happen by itself. It happens because there's been a good education system in place that helps that consciousness grow to that higher, more inclusive awareness. And it just so happens that there's a lot of studies that suggest certain kinds of spiritual practice, i.e., the ones we're the ones we're doing, <laughs> meditation, yoga, body-based, mind-based practices, help facilitate that growth. So, the, in a way, part of the education programming, part of the curriculum that supports this evolution of consciousness is embedded in these spiritual traditions. And again, I know I can, I'm biased here because this is what I do. But to all of you, I, I'm, I always say I'm grateful for your practice because 
It's by practicing that you're doing your bit. And by teaching, you're helping others do their bit. Or maybe if you don't teach just the way you are at the, at the post office, at the grocery store, at meetings, at work, with your, your neighbors, that the practice may inform how you are just in the world. And that is a positive force. And I know we're a small sangha. We're a very small sangha. But I want to end with a short little uh, passage about and quoting a, an Indian author. Uh, he's written fiction and nonfiction. His name is Amitabh Ghosh. And he taught anthropology at the college I went to. And when I got to India and was working for... Uh, at the school that I taught at in India, I learned that the principal of the school that I was teaching at was old college friends with Amitabh Ghosh. So there's a, there's a semi, like I've just missed him by a few, <laughs> few elbows, but um, I've, I've always appreciated his writing. And he's writing a lot about the historical roots of our climate crisis. And in, the, in a recent article in The, in the Guardian, the author said, for Ghosh, the survival of our planet hinges on our returning to interacting with the earth as a living being to be listened to, understood, and respected. Quoting Ghosh, he says, quote, the indigenous peoples of the Americas have been saying for decades that our past is your future. And that's exactly what's proving now to be the case. And this, is, this next bit is what I think relates to what we're involved in right now. A community of people practicing, talking, connecting. The article continues to say, Gosha's hope for the planet lies instead in movements such as Black Lives Matter, the Standing Rock protests, the Occupy protests, where the colonialist viewpoints that have infused society for hundreds of years finally began to be challenged and the power and potential of global connectivity was felt. In the final lines of his book on the climate crisis called The Nutmeg's Curse, Ghosh says, it is not of billionaires or technology that will save us. It is not of billionaires or technology that will save us, but instead a vitalist mass movement, a vitalist mass movement driven by human spirit that may actually be magical enough to change hearts and minds across the world. I think I've shared this in the past, uh, but before Thich Nhat Hanh died, was going back a few years, someone asked him, who will be the next Buddha? 
Who will be the next Buddha? And I've been asking myself recently, where is our next Gandhi? Where is a leader of love to awaken and inspire hearts to bring us to a higher plane, a higher ground? And Thich Nhat Hanh answered, the next Buddha is the Sangha. And I don't mean Sangha is just any group of people. You know, it, traditionally, Sangha means actually the, the enlightened disciples of the Buddha. So if that was the case, you know, I would be a bad Sangha leader because I'm not an enlightened disciple. But more, you know, generally speaking, Sangha refers here now to people who have like-minded values, shared commitment to the development of the heart, awakening of the heart, to living more wisely and more compassionately. So it's in this grassroots format of all of us supporting each other in our practice. And, you know, I, I share that the, the, the anguish many people are sharing with us about the events in the world, but the other side of the shares are, are really uh, what's truly gratifying is the, the insights, the transformations, the softenings, the opening people are having in their heart to themselves and to others in their lives that to me speaks to the natural development of what occurs when the Dharma becomes activated within our life. Okay, as always, I hope that talk gave you some reflection and um, kind of stimulating input for your own practice. And um, if you have thoughts and feelings or reflections back from me, I would love to hear what you thought, your thoughts are on this talk. Um, you can email me those at josh at joshsummers.net. Um, and once again, if you'd like to practice along with me and Terry in our kind of low-key online practice community, we, we, we practice yin yoga, qigong, and meditation um, on a weekly basis. And you can take live classes with us or attend those classes at your own convenience through our library. If you'd like to join us, check out the link in the show notes for how to practice online with me and Terry. We welcome your practice, and um, wherever you are, we wish you peace. We wish you well-being, and thank you again for your practice. Until next time, take good care.